I'm Trevor Allred, and this is the 1888 Center Podcast. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to storytelling. Through creative collaboration, our programs are designed to provide tools for community innovation. This episode was produced at 1888 Center, located in the historic district of Old Town Orange, California. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the live recording of The Purpose of Past Tense, brought to you from 1888. My name is Trevor, and today we are with guest Nahum Weinberg from the Netherlands. Thanks, thanks. It's good to, meet, good to have you out. So you're a poet, you're a novelist. You have, I believe, uh, 16 books of poetry and five novels out. Is this true? Uh, I have to, to calculate. It's at least 17. I think the 18th will come out this, 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 this year. Wow. But I prefer quantity over quality in all respects. So <laughs> that's... Uh... Fair. It's a, good, it's a good approach, at least. At least you got one. But we're going to talk about the approach. That's why we're here. The purpose of Past Tense, this podcast, is designed to look at um, career moments where you had to look back and decide the next step. What catapulted you to the next? What brought you to the next step? Um, so there's really a lot to talk about, but I want to begin, I want to save the books and the poetry for near the end and ask you more briefly about this business aspect that you bring. You work, you have a PhD in what? What do you study? Well, my PhD is in management science. I got a master's in law and a master's in, in what is called, at least in the Netherlands, general economics or uh -huh. macro uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you, um, how often do you collaborate with these creative industries? You were mentioning before when you well, we were talking. Well, I, 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 at the moment already for, for the last dozen years, I have a chair. It was at the business school at the University of Amsterdam where I'm supposed to specialize uh, in the economics and business side of the creative industries. And this chair has been originally uh, created thanks to Big Brother, the, the, the television show, in <laughs> really? case you wondered whether this program had any further negative consequences on world <laughs> history. I am one of these consequences, uh, <laughs> apart from destroying human culture as we know it. Uh, so... Very short story, uh, Big Brother was created somewhere around 2000. In, it's a, it was a Dutch television production company which created the program. They got fantastically successful with this program, so successful that the production company was, was uh, bought by a large Spanish telecom operator uh, for something between four and five billion euros uh, a few years later. Uh, and the, 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 the two founders of the company owned still most of the stock, so they became instant billionaires. And one of them, I mean, one of them was, was, was very much engaged with, well, the theater and the cultural industries in a larger sense. And he... Uh, at some point wanted to donate a little bit of money to the University of Amsterdam because he had noticed that in the creative industries lots of people on the management side are actually like, well, failed artists. 
I mean, people come into the creative industry, you become a director of a theater or even a director of a, of a cultural center because, well, you are attracted by the theater, then it turns out you are not the world's next great actor or director, and because you really want to stay in the theater, as a default option, you become the, the general manager of a theater group or of a theater. So he was, I mean, the, that, that creates some problems. And the idea was there should be more people actually doing the opposite route, coming in from the business school and being motivated by an interest in the creative industries, but having had like the same kind of education as a manager of Unilever or the Shell or, or, or the, the Walmart would have, but then, be, I mean, going to the creative industries because you are really attracted by the problems, the managerial challenges of the industries, not as a default option. So they, so again, the, the, uh, the, the one of the guys founding the company that produced Big Brother set up a foundation. The foundation gave uh, money to the University of Amsterdam to create, to endow a chair precisely to do creative industries in the business school. Wow. And then they thought I was the best idea to occupy that chair. Another <laughs> mistake, but these things are always series of mistakes. <laughs> Let's assume it was a strategic move. What what are you bringing to that position? What is this? How does this work for you? Also being a poet. Well, actually, the I kept the well the two the two career paths pretty well separated uh, most of my professional life. Uh, in fact, I, I published my first book of poetry in the same year I uh, I defended my PhD in, uh, in uh, 19, 1990, actually the book of poetry was out in 89, end of 89, so it was slightly earlier, but same period. And uh, I did, well, I did lots of more, well, things which didn't have anything to do with the creative industries on the academic side. I did technology policy, I did international economics even for a while, I did, I became, First, a full professor in Groningen, which is a city up in the north of the Netherlands, very far away. Although, of course, for Californian standards, it would be like a suburb from Amsterdam. <laughs> it's uh, two hours drive. That's not bad. <laughs> uh, the, and there I was a professor of industrial economics, which is a fairly, well, I mean, you are uh, doing fairly normal stuff, but I was already then doing research, starting to do research which had to do with the creative industries, among other reasons, not just because I was interested in the creative industries, because, but because the simple thing is that for a management scientist, especially if you do a bit of marketing, I mean, essentially the creative industries have much better data than most other industries. I mean, if you if you want to study something boring like refrigerators, you are pretty happy if you get like yearly sales data from a company. <laughs> if you want to, to look at uh, movies, you go to the IMDb database, you get box office per week of each and every movie ever released in, 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 in globally. 
So you actually have simply better data to study competitive processes, to study market changes, if you go to the creative industries, because it's, so that is, I mean, it's also one of the ways I sell, because as you know, professors' main role is to sell research to other people to get grants and to occupy more people, <laughs> but uh, this is a fairly convincing sales argument in general, even to people, even if you're not interested in music or movies or books, the data are much better. You can do, you can actually test hypotheses you couldn't test with all kinds of other industries. Uh, there is also much more of a public presence, reviews, everything is out there. So uh, that was helpful and as, and at the same time, I, it's, the creative industries is also the place where, as you well know, <laughs> things are more extreme. So um, if you have the same process, I mean, there is competition, but in the, in the creative industry, there's hyper-competition all over the place. I mean, there are a quarter of a million people in Los Angeles, try, I mean, hoping to get a call for a casting uh, here or there. There are, yes, the refrigerator industry is a hard place, but there are essentially like 20 manufacturers worldwide, and some do better, some do worse. It's a gentle industry compared to, to, to the movie industry or music or television. Uh, you have lots of things which are, because they are more extreme, they're essentially the same process. This is one of the other things I uh, preach a lot. But, and I can say this, and now we get to the, to the, to the link with the poetry, one of the great advantages uh, which I have in this particular position is that, well, I can go with or without my students in, in a creative industry research project and talk to the people in the business there and essentially tell them whether they're an art gallery or a museum or a theater group. I mean, you are, I mean, we're studying the management, the economics of the process, the competitive story here. And they might say, well, but you don't understand what this is really about. It's about artistic values. This has nothing to do with economics or which they say to my colleagues. But then I have street credibility. And I mean, just try to beat me yeah. on that. I mean, I'm a celebrated poet. Yeah. Who are you to tell me that I don't understand the artistic side of your business? You've got a box in. So this makes life actually much easier for me. <laughs> so you have both working for you. Yeah, I, I'm curious to, to know more about this effect of like uh, referencing this data and this the, a professional study of the arts industries and the creative industries. What do we? What are what are there trends happening? What 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 are the use and the applications of this data? What are we What are we doing? Well, quite a lot. I mean, I'm I'm rather spread out. I mean, the project I'm working with with most of the audience here. Is about <laughs> shout out to the audience. <laughs> is about is about is about categorization. So we study like how new genres appear and disappear. How you competitively position yourself vis-a-vis -vis 
the, the classification system of a particular industry and, and also, uh, in, in, in fact, how you can look at different classification systems at the same time. This is one sub-project we are just working on. I mean, like music, you can classify in genres, R&B, uh, country and western, etc. You can also classify it in terms of moods and style. Uh, style. So there is music for relaxation. There is music for using in a spinning exercises, there is music to, uh, to, to create a romantic atmosphere, etc. These are like completely different categories, which, I mean, the music to create a romantic atmosphere could be R&B, could be jazz, could be anything. So these are like independent classification systems, which at the same time operate in the same, in, in the same market. And you have to take, I mean, you have, one of the interesting things is that we look at, well, the, 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 the effects of category spanning, so being in more than one industry at the same time, that's a classic problem. You are both R&B and jazz, or you are both, the music is both good for creating a romantic atmosphere and doing a spinning cycle in the gym. There must be music that works that way. <laughs> uh, you see all the people in the gym suddenly looking romantically on their spinning cycle. That's uh, it's empirically it's testable. The, <laughs> it's the music. Uh, and I mean, usually you get like lower evaluations, lower market performance by spanning because it's not clear what you are. But under some circumstances, it might also benefit you. So this kind of topics, very global. And I'm just mentioning this because, again, the, some people I work with are, are here. But we also look at organizational issues like dual management, lots of cultural centers, theater groups, uh, uh, orchestras have like a business manager and an artistic manager who are functionally equivalent. I see. And that's how they divide um, a business aspect and a creative aspect. Yeah, but and then the question is, what? how should that be done to, to manage the business most effectively? And we... I had a PhD project which went very much into the question how different should these people be to create an optimal result? Should they really be as far apart as possible? Uh, you usually think to if you have to collaborate that intimately you better be a bit alike, but there are also very good reasons why you should precisely be very unalike to create, uh, to, to profit from this dual management yeah, story. Yeah. I see, okay. And, and earlier you mentioned there's this, a little bit of a resistance and uh, it, is, it makes plenty of sense that artists would be defensive and um, try to preserve the sense of this is a creative field, we're not um, deliberate or maybe business-minded about these things, but coming from your side, it's the most optimal approach. What are some of the, the clashes or some of the conflict you hear coming from the creative mind um, against the, the business aspect and wow, that I kind mean, of level? It's essentially that in the, especially in the high art creative industries, one, people are extremely uh, feeling uncomfortable if they are talked about in economic terms. Because this, uh, to give just an obvious example, I actually had a group of students wanted to do a small project for, in the, for some course. 
about a topic which was attractive to them, which was about Amsterdam nightlife. So I, I, uh, I don't know whether you've been over there in the, the so one of the, the nightlife centers in Amsterdam is the Leidse Plain. And you have essentially, there are at least two large live venues and a lot of cafes and bars and discotheques and whatever, but there are two very large live venues where lots of famous rock bands appear. And they are a hundred meters apart, essentially. Uh, and even more so because, because of their location, it's like 50% probably, and in the summer more of their audience are tourists just walking around and then when it's midnight checking in there if, uh, to, to listen to a concert, drink a few beers, do whatever. So they wanted to study, I mean, really like competitive market relations there. So they went to the, to the management of, 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 of these two and some other venues in that area, and they just asked the obvious questions which they would ask if, the, if it were like refrigerator uh, uh, stores. Who, can you tell me what are your most important competitors here? And each of them said, competitors? We don't have any competitors. I mean, firstly, and then the students would say, yeah, but I mean, there is like, if, we, if, if you walk 100 meters down the street, there is, seems to be an organization doing more or less exactly the same what you're doing for the same consumers. I mean, from our standpoint, it looks a bit like a competitor. No, they were really like, you cannot say this. Firstly, we know these people. They're, they're, the, they're good friends. Uh, we, we don't want to think about them as competitors. That was step one. Step two was, and also, we are not really doing something comparable because our programming is really different from their programming. In fact, they're doing, I mean, in, in broader terms, yes, every, every refrigerator is different from every refrigerator, but in, in general terms, for the average person walking the street there, they were doing exactly the same. But of course, they had slight differences. I mean, they never programmed the same band in the same evening. But they said, no, no, we, you cannot really compare us at all, because this is, this is an artistic pursuit, even creating a program. And each, each product is completely individual, cannot be compared to any other product. So this is the reaction you get yeah. if, you, if you... So you have to browbeat them a bit to get the right information. <laughs> That's part of the question uh, I sort of um, put it on my, upon myself to ask on behalf of um, the American creatives. How do you work outside of um, teaching... English or writing and still work as, as a creative mind. And, and you come from a business school, but you're a well-established writer. That balance of creative and this uh, kind of the evil business mindset, how do, you, how do you keep it straight? Well, I mean, to, firstly, to me, there, I mean, it's not so much a business mindset. I mean, I'm luckily doing mostly research and a little bit of teaching uh, and, and a lot of Fundraising, yes, but the uh, uh, essentially for me, doing research in and and writing poetry are very similar 
activities. It's just a different toolbox. It's not, it's not, I mean, you're trying to understand something a little bit better and you use a different toolbox to do so. So it's not, it's of course a different atmosphere. It's a different group of people. And I'm not even sure, I mean, I'm certainly sure I could miss lots of aspects of my university life happily, but in general, being only a poet has some drawbacks. I mean, it has some advantages to be regularly forced to think about completely different things and be forced to use completely different tools, maybe even look at similarities, which there clearly are. You can, if you have more tools, you can choose better which tool to use. To, 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 uh, uh, even if you have tools which you would never use for a particular type of problem, just the fact that you know about the tools you don't use gives a better idea about how to use the tools you do use. So it's, and it's, apart from that, I just have been extremely lucky because, I mean, I don't know whether I would be able to, to combine it as easily if I hadn't had always very comfortable niche positions here and there and people would have, uh, people have made my life fairly easy in that respect. So I'm not, I'm not saying as a general model, I know that, 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 uh, that I've been extremely privileged in, uh, and apart from that, I just write a lot. So uh, more than one person has said that actually it's likely that my publishers pay the university just to keep me from publishing more books. <laughs> that's not a, not a bad spot. No, that's not bad. You, me you mentioned it's, it comes from the same tool set. And for you, it's on a similar mindset, research and, and writing. Um, let's use that as a transition to more talk about more about your creative work. How does... What is your, your, do you have a plan with all of this? I mean, you have written so many books. How do the projects come to mind? How do you approach these ideas? What, what is your, what's your first step? Well, in a way, there is, there is never a first step because oh. the, the, the books, as, well, maybe not the first books. The first books were really collections of what had been published in the couple of years before that these books came out, or at selections rather. Uh, but after that, most books, or all books of poetry, uh, were real units in a sense that there was a kind of thematic and also unity in terms of, diff of, of tools, different formal, formal tools. And this, this usually, I mean, it doesn't, start out with a circumscribed idea, this I want to do, and let's see what happens. I mean, I, I simply write every day. So lots of things happen. Lots of potential books, as it were, uh, uh, appear and disappear. Uh, lots of stuff gets thrown away. I rewrite a lot. And then at some point, in fact, again, not, not taking a first step, but looking back at at a few hundred steps I, I've taken in the past month, I see, well, there is something coming into being here, which I then try to much more, I mean, exploit much more systematically. So both the formal side, you try to see what, what, what can you find out doing writing poetry in that particular way, and trying to see how far can you get. 
and also with respect to certain themes, how far can you get? And then sometimes you cannot get very far, and then it doesn't end up in a book. And sometimes it's uh, it's sufficiently uh, it, it 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 becomes a book, and then one usually I work usually on more books at the same time anyway. So it's uh, it's it, it's it's much easier that way. I think you you never have a writer's block. It's uh, there's always something to do. <laughs> there, you always have too little time. It's uh, and and I also think, and this is really like the craftsmanship, which you, I mean, it's like. I mean, if, you, if you're a musician or a composer, the idea that you wouldn't work on something every day is, 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 is strange. I mean, with poetry, there is this, this half myth that you wait for inspiration and only when the inspiration strikes, you, you write the, 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 the perfect sentences, which you then, I mean, with some small corrections, work up in a publishable poem. But that's, I mean, I... I think precisely by working essentially all the time on ongoing projects, I mean, not, not letting it, I mean, thinking upon it continually, as a famous physicist once said about a serious problem, uh, it's actually, it helps you to become a much better craftsman because you, again, it's simply, if you have tools which you can, which you use without having to, 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 to start thinking how to use them just because they come to hand immediately, you have such an advantage compared to having to start all over again. And by, by practicing every day, you simply get a much better, become a much better craftsman. If you become a much better craftsman, you can actually engage in much more risky projects. I see. So part of what keeps you going is actually just a desire for, for more projects, but just basic routine. You set, you set it upon yourself to produce this work, to write a, a quantity of words, and that this develops and pushes you into the next project well, and the next project. Well, it's, it's, it's actually more, I, I don't have a quantity of words. I mean, I, I'm very much a fan of, of the English 19th century writer Trollope, who, who did like Whatever war, whatever happened that day, he always wrote early in the morning. I don't know, two thousand words or something. But that's. Uh, uh, but for me, again, it's actually even simpler. The be I write poetry to 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 understand things a little bit better. Now, luckily, there are quite a lot of things I don't understand very well. So in that sense, the supply of problems is like. I mean, I don't have to say I need to write a number of words. There are all kinds of problems I want to think about. I, I need to think about uh, from, I mean, any problems which have to do with human behavior, with, I mean, including your personal problems, whatever. I mean, I, the best way I can think about them is to try to write a poem. So, I mean, there isn't a day in my, I mean, there are days in which I have a fever or whatever, and that makes working difficult, but I, I couldn't imagine not feeling the need to write poetry. It's not something I have to tell me myself, let's, let's write a few poems. It's a bit of a, uh, it works the other way around. And, and this last book again is, is a bit, because it's, 
it was part it was in a way a challenge which 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 was waiting for me because I precisely because I always had said poetry and research it's essentially the same activity and you I write about lots of different stuff uh, and of course why didn't I write I mean if this was the case why wouldn't I write about economics and politics using the means of poetry. So then I really wanted to, to, in a way, to go all out in that direction and really explicitly write about categorization, about the money supply, about flexible labor contracts. <laughs> there is a poem about the advantages and disadvantages. I mean, just But it's to, actually funny. It's funny stuff, actually. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I try to joke probably too often. It's in all my student evaluation that uh, students feel uncomfortable because I joke too much about the material they're supposed to take seriously. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, low blow. I see. So you use poetry as, um, as a mode of thinking. You, this is a way of problem solving for you, it, which is truly a, a unique approach to poetry. Well, How does that work for you? I don't think it's... Well, I don't think it's, it's, it's unique. I certainly... I mean, but it's... it's I, it has some consequences because, I mean, well, one consequence is that if people come up to me and say, I have no idea, I mean, I've, I, I, your poems are wonderful. I've, I felt this, this warm feeling completely taking hold of me, although I have not the slightest idea what the poem is about. I always have the strong urge to strangle them uh, because, <laughs> because these are the kind of poems where I really, I mean, there is a there is a whole culture of both producing and consuming poetry where it's like transmitting feelings is this seems to be the object of the exercise and emotions feelings are a valuable part of the toolbox because if you feel touched by the poem, you're drawn in, you get into deeper meanings of the poem because the poem attracts you, but it's not the goal, it's the means. So for, for and in, in also the, 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 the another basic object of poetry, I mean, or all arts, like the creation of something beautiful, it's a means. And in fact, I, because I, I rewrite and rewrite uh, a lot, uh, and this rewriting is, is, is especially like a correction. I mean, you, you write stuff and then you notice, yeah, but this is not completely right. This is not true. I mean, that's, uh, I, I, I created patterns of meaning which I've been careless here. I need to reduce it. I need to make it more narrow. I, mean, it, I, I, I need to make things more clear. I need to exclude particular meanings I didn't mean to propose. And doing that, especially in the, at the start, I really was worried about poems sounding too beautiful. So I actively tried to remove these things because I was worried that I was, I, I wouldn't then see, I mean, if a poem sounded very 
beautiful. It had a wonderful rhythm. There was like this, 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 this music, this, this sound effects. <laughs> yeah. And then I wouldn't see anymore what was wrong with this sentence. I thought. In fact, later I have some. I mean, also in the divan and some some poems where I I allowed myself to create poems which also would sound a little bit more beautiful, but because I thought I could handle it. It's like a, like a sign of confidence in my own craftsmanship that sometimes, at least, I'm willing to engage in writing poems which are obviously beautiful. So it sounds very immodest, but it's, uh, uh, I allow myself this once in a while. <laughs> once in a while. I see. This is, so can we... Um, Zero, uh, zero in on of great importance, for example, uh, as a book. Uh, how does this, your process, your, your style come out through this? I mean, throughout the, throughout the pages you have um, these envoys. There's a, almost like a second thought. If, you're, if the poem is a thought process, then what are these secondary moments that where you expand? Are you having second thoughts? Do you rethink yourself? Is that normal? Well, it's also, I mean, as you, as you have noticed, the, the well, not, I mean, not all poems have envoys. Envoy is, of course, a very classic thing. You have a ballad, and then you have an envoy, which, which, which sets off the ending. And here I have this, because I, this is a little bit of a mixed method book, so there are different formal uh, approaches here, and always the envoys, sometimes there are even three envoys, have different formal structures than the main poem. It's just a way to create a bit of tension to, through different messages. And it's not so much that the envoy corrects or adds, but it's really, again, a poem is like a, is a pattern of meanings which in itself create meanings. So, I mean, the, 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 so the, it's also you, you talk about different things and the fact that you bring these things together in one poem creates, again, an additional layer of meaning. So the envoy is, is a technical trick to set apart very emphatically different parts of the poem to create a bit of space for this to happen. Ah, fantastic. Okay, okay. So then, well, can we talk about some of your, the topics you take on hand? You, uh, you uh, explicate into economic theories, there's history, there's everything going on. These are just results of current problems that you're curious about, that you think through? Is this, or are you deliberate in um, seeking to engage with a, a, a certain set of problems, or? Well, it's, it's, well, these are all problems which I, for whatever reason, came up to mind. Let me just give a, I mean, one of the shortest poems, let me see whether I can actually find it, uh, because there are, oh, I found it. There are, there are lots of very long poems, so they're probably too long for, for a podca podcast reading. Well, unless it's a separate reading, but this just, just has a, it's a silly story. Uh, Firstly, in the background, because I also borrow from a lot of, well, borrow, steal stuff uh, from, from great poets, as one should. And one of the important poets in the background of this particular book is Kafafi, the, 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 the early 20th century Greek poet, very famous also in the United States. And one of the tricks he uses, actually, is to retell a story from ancient history or sometimes even mythology, actually retell it fairly, 
fairly simply and creating meanings in the particular way he retells this story. Now, I, just to show how important a person I am in this world, the, the okay, the backstory is that we have the European Union. I, know, I never know how much to explain in the United States about <laughs> these things. We maybe I should say we still have the European Union. It's, uh, uh, it's crumbling a bit with the, with the UK trying to exit and, the, and Hungary trying to create a fascist state on the other end. But somewhere in between we still have the European Union. And the European Union has a rotating chairmanship. And in a particular year, I think it was 2011-12 when I started the first poems from this book, uh, Italy was the chair of the European Union and they wanted to celebrate the contribution of Italian culture to Europe. So the idea was then, well, what is more Italian than the sonnet? So the, 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 the core poetic form the Italian sonnet, Petrarca, uh, the, 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 the Dante, well, Dante writes also sonnets, but book, uh, the, so they asked, essentially they created, they wanted to create a book and a small festival and whatever, a podcast probably, uh, where they asked from each EU country, one poet to write a sonnet. And sonnet was to be understood in a very broad sense, a 14-line poem. I mean, Italy has gone down, really. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, and well, I happily agreed, uh, also because this poem would be translated then in other languages, and that's always fun, and I had, I, I, this was the period in which headline news in Europe was especially centering on the Greek debt crisis. So it said that that was the hot topic. Every couple of weeks there were emergency meetings because the Greeks were not able to pay their public debts and what should all the other countries do. So I wrote this this poem and I thought this would be wonderful to contribute to the public discussion. This will be like an official EU publication. Well, I, let me just read the poem. It's very short, it's only 14 lines and it's an historical piece of history. It's, the, the title of the poem is Borrowing from the Greeks, which already is a good title, I think, here. <laughs> okay, now, this, this, the, 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 the anecdote is is, is about Hellenic uh, uh, Egypt, so the Ptolemies are the, 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 the king's pharaohs of Egypt, and they want to become the center of Hellenic culture, the, the museum, the, the, the library of Alexandria, all these things are founded by the Ptolemy kings. But borrowing from the Greeks, as if you are Ptolemy Urgetes, you ask the Athenians to lend you Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the manuscripts of all their plays, including those that are later lost. And you give them 15 silver talents they can keep if you don't return them undamaged. You copy the manuscripts and return the copies, not secretly, but as if standing on the stage, immediately explaining 
that the Athenians can keep the 15 talents as a fine for what you have done to them. And then I thought, this will teach them. And of course, I mean, this is the frustrating part, especially when you think that, that poetry is such a great way of thinking about everything which is important in human behavior. And uh, uh, you, want to make, you want to use it to make a statement of which should be relevant for economics and politics. And nobody takes it seriously because it's a poem. Uh. Didn't see that coming. So I, I'm still working on that. <laughs> we'll get there. Perfect. Well, let's let's um, let's thank our guest for today for the for the podcast coming out. <laughs> Nachum, it's great having you. Thank you for listening to the 1888 Center podcast. Support our mission by subscribing, reviewing, or donating today. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and Trevor Allred. Our music is composed and performed by Dan Record. Visit us in Old Town Orange, California, or online at 1888.center.